You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning, and thank you very much for being with us today. My name is Moises Naim. I'm a senior associate at the International Economics Program here at Carnegie. Delighted to welcome you here. Delighted, Senator Warner, to have you here, too. Um, future historians are going to puzzle about the lack of proportion between uh, the deficit and uh, the problems it, it engenders and the potential risks uh, it creates and the inaction that this society and this political system has uh, displayed in, that, in tackling it. The list of uh, reasons why this is uh, an emergency is well known and constantly repeated. And yet, uh, nothing happens and, uh, until something will happen. And it may be too late, and all of the very bad things that we know happen when uh, the uh, discontinuities and imbalances uh, explode uh, are going to obtain. So that's, uh, that's an initial puzzle. Why is it that we know so much about how bad this is and we are doing so little to tackle it? Why? And therefore, the corollary to that question is how to change that. The second, is, uh, the second surprise, of course, is that uh, this behavior has been enabled by uh, a very benevolent international financial system. Uh, money managers and fund managers around the world are the ones that are allowing this situation to continue, which is, again, a puzzle especially uh, given all we have seen recently about how quickly what uh, seemingly stable situations become highly unstable and painful. I'm thinking, of course, about Europe. Um, and uh, so th those are puzzles uh, that have consequences, that will touch people's lives, that will uh, define power relations in the world, that will undermine or boost uh, uh, sectors, uh, social, social groups, and so on. Uh, Senator Warner has been at the forefront of this uh, theme for quite a while. He is one uh, of the original members of the so-called uh, Gang of Six, which is a bipartisan uh, group uh, in Congress that is trying to do something about it. Uh, he will not accept it or recognize, but uh, insiders in Congress know that he is like the ringleader of the, of the, of the Gang of Six. Uh, as I said, he's a bipartisan uh, uh, group in which everyone is the same, but we know that uh, there are primus inter pares and there are uh, some senators that energize and uh, rally more than others. Um, as they say, Senator Warner doesn't need any introduction. Um, he has been a successful entrepreneur, a governor who has to balance a budget, and now as a United States senator, he has taken a very significant uh, leadership position and leadership behavior on this very, very important issue. Uh, senator Warner is going to give us, uh, uh, share with us his thoughts and, and vision about this thing, and then, of course, we're going to have a conversation with all of you. Senator. Thank you, Moises. Let me um, first of all apologize uh, for being late this morning. Um, one of the advantages of being the senator from Virginia is that uh, I actually get to sleep in my own home each night, uh, as opposed to so many of the senators who uh, live far away. Uh, uh, that's the good advantage. The bad advantage is I have to drive through northern Virginia traffic to get here. And I was so excited this morning because I thought, oh, I'm going to be there early. And then about uh, the bridges, things started getting bad. So uh, I apologize about being late. Second, um, <clears throat> I just said that, you know, um, Mark Warner is one of the gang of six, and he may be uh, one of the ringleaders, and he wouldn't acknowledge that. Um, the reason you can tell that I am maybe one of the ringleaders on the issue of debt and deficit, it is because particularly during last year, when this last summer, when this issue was very big, every time I would walk along 
the hallways in the Senate and another senator would come walking the other direction, the senator would see me and go the other direction quickly because I know if I saw them, I would grab them and say, we have to, um, we have to fix this. Uh, what I want to do this morning, and I will do this very briefly because I want to get to the conversation, um, and because I looked over the list, and I know we've got friends from China, friends from Greece, friends from a number of other uh, um, international uh, embassies here. I do want to take a moment and at least briefly, and be careful when a politician says briefly on anything, and take you through a, a bit of the just the data points uh, around the problem, and then I want to try to kind of take on some of the assumptions of why we're not acting on this problem right now and hopefully leave you with a, a, a little bit of a hope. I'm hoping this is the clicker that works. Okay. I'm hoping this is the clicker that works. Okay. Did I go back there? Let me... Um, technical assistance. If we could go back one. I wanted to just... Um, I got, can we go back on, on this one second here? Back here. Did I do that? Nope. I'm going to go in the wrong direction. We can go back to. Back to the beginning. There we go. Okay. Um, oftentimes, you know, politicians in this country say, uh, it's like people suddenly woke up to say, there's a deficit. There is a debt. Um, this slide points out that um, this is a problem that is going to get exponentially worse but that over the last 70 years in the United States, every year, but about five of those years, a couple years in the early 70s and then around 2000, the United States of America has run an annual deficit. That's how we ended up now with $15 trillion in debt. The point here is that every year that we run a deficit means that it's not just the Republican problem or the Democrats problem or it's not Bush's wars or Obama's stimulus. Uh, that this is an, an issue that has been a structural problem that's growing. I often point out when I'm talking to groups around the country that the real problem of our deficit in America is not the problem of the Republicans or the Democrats, but the real cause of our deficit are the doctors. And that's because with increasing medical technology, we are living much longer and our entitlement systems were not set up for people to live this long. Um, the fact, the most important fact to take away from this is that particularly in the last few years, if you have no other fact that you take away, <clears throat> federal spending in America right now is 25% of our GDP. That's an all-time high. Revenues are at 15%. That's a 70-year low. The only time during these past 70 years that there has been budget balance or surplus has been when revenues and spending have been between 19.5% and 21%. So it doesn't take a Carnegie scholar to realize that if you're spending 25 cents and only collecting 15 cents and your budget balance has been at 19 to 21%, you've got to decrease spending and uh, uh, increase revenues. Oh, okay, I can do this. Um, this is very briefly the fact that the only reason we are not in further crisis stage at this point is because interest rates are at an all-time low. Every 100 basis point increase in interest rates will um, increase the deficit over a 10-year period, $1.3 trillion. And I say this with some trepidation. I know we've got, as I looked at the uh, invitation list, I think friends from Greece here and others, I feel a little bit bad that uh, in America right now, it seems like the American rallying cry, particularly after our, the failure of the super committee and the failure of, of the, um, um, the Congress to reach a budget agreement last summer, and we haven't seen the kind of catastrophes take place that were predicted, it seems like the American rallying cry has become, at least we're better than the EU. Um, I'm not sure that is a... Uh, a long-term financial uh, uh, program going forward. But if we ever saw interest rates spike, you would see uh, the deficit dramatically increase. Now, this again points out the problem that you know, on any kind of spending basis, spending all-time high, revenues all-term low. If we're going to get anywhere close to that 
18 to 21% where you see where the lines get close uh, or the lines have actually passed, it's going to take increase in revenue and decrease in spending. Um, this goes to my question about you know, the uh, retirement age and the, the, the time of our, the challenge of our, around entitlements. Um, you know, we've got a multinational crowd here, international crowd here. I don't know if anyone knows. Do you know who set the original retirement age uh, uh, of 65? Bismarck. Bismarck. Good answer. Good answer. And Bismarck set, when he was premier of Germany, he set retirement age of 65 because at that point in the 1870s, 1880s, average life expectancy was mid-50s. So it wasn't a bad deal that the government will give you a check if you outlive the actuarial tables about 10 years. Even in this country, when Roosevelt set 65 as a retirement age in 1934 for Social Security, average life expectancy is 62. Now, thank goodness, average life expectancy is 80. I hope by the time that uh, my young aide Nathan gets to that age, it'll be 90. Um, and, but this means that the the underlying financial assumptions around entitlements, not that it's Democrats or Republicans' fault, it just needs to be changed. Uh, drives this point home more often, and I, I, I'm a Democrat, so I get, you know, the challenge come a broad basis, Republicans have to deal with revenues, Democrats have to deal with entitlements, those are our third rails, and I get a lot of folks on the Democratic side say to me, oh, you know, Mark, you're wrong, Social Security is sound, Social Security goes into dramatic, we're, we're already paying out more in Social Security benefits than we're taking in. In 2036, we would have, unless we make changes now, you'll see a dramatic cutback in Social Security payments. And again, it's not anyone's fault. It's just math. When I was a young man, you know, 16 workers for every one retiree. Today there are three. In 2025, there'll be two. It means the underlying finances just don't work. This one is is very a little too busy, but it's important to point out because I think that most members of Congress, Democrats, Republicans, don't really understand how in our country we raise money or where we spend money. And if you go out and talk oftentimes to the American people, they will say, well, you can solve this problem by just getting rid of waste and fraud. It's all right. I, I heard the cell phone ring. Uh, I am... Uh, before I was in politics, I was in business, and I was the uh, co-founder of the cellular telephone company, Nextel. Um, so the rest of people may have heard an annoying sound. When that goes off, I hear cha-ching, cha-ching, so it's okay for me. Um, <laughs> but this slide is important because it shows a couple of points that you know, where spending growth has come, in the last 10 or 20 years in America, it's not because America is spending more money on infrastructure. I see our friends from China here. China, as a percentage of GDP, is spending much more on infrastructure than America. America is disinvesting in infrastructure. America is in, in investing less as a percentage of its GDP in education, less in research and development, not things that you should do if you want to stay competitive in the 21st century. Where our growth in spending is coming is two or three areas. It's coming from entitlement programs because we have an aging population. It's coming from increased spending in defense because of the changes after 9-11. And in our country, we've created a whole new area of spending that didn't exist called homeland security. And the biggest area of spending is this category right over here, which most people don't even think of spending, and that's spending in the tax code. What do I mean by that? That's spending in terms of tax breaks, tax deductions. You know, we, the American income tax raises a trillion dollars a year. The American income tax system spends $1.2 trillion a year in income tax deductions. That's just government spending by a different name. You could cut everybody's tax rate in half and raise more revenue if you got rid of all the tax deductions. Now, everybody nods until you realize that means home mortgage deductions, charitable deduction, health care exclusions, things that are quite popular. But, it, but if we're going to have a debate about how we raise revenues, looking at government spending through the tax code is something where we have to, we have to look. And those are some of the largest ones there on the right. Um, 
So the assumption has become, you know, nothing is going to happen. And there are four assumptions that are governing the kind of conventional political wisdom uh, that says, you know, nothing is going to happen anytime soon uh, on debt and deficit. And, and I think each of them are, are, um, are partially wrong. First is that the, particularly the assumption that is, that is conventional wisdom in Washington right now is, well, this is a hard issue. Of course, we can't do this in a presidential election year. You know, when I ran for the United States Senate three years ago and I got hired for this job, I didn't get the memo that said you get to take election years off. Or maybe more people would hire, run if they thought, well, you get six years every, every four years, you get one year to take off. It's, it's crazy. I mean, how many of you are from a nation other than America? Raise your hands. Raise your hands, please. In your countries, are you taking, is your government, are your people, is your economy taking this year off because it's an American presidential election year? No, I don't think so. So the notion that China or Brazil or Europe or India are taking an election year off because it happens to be an pre- election year here in America is, is it's crazy that we're going to have a political gridlock this year uh, simply because it's an election year. And, and frankly, the election campaign now that seems to be more talking about um, you know, contraceptives and whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to go to college doesn't necessarily enhance America's image in the world. But um, I think that we cannot afford to take every, four, every fourth year off from dealing with policy. The second presumption is that don't worry, we'll do it next year because it'll be easier. Well, at the end of this year, here are the things that are going to happen. Whether President Obama is reelected or whoever happens to be this week's Republican nominee is elected, no one can honestly believe that this is going to have an election where either the Republican or the Democrat is going to win the country by 55 or 60 percent of the vote. There's not going to be a landslide election. Um, unless maybe one or two of the more extreme Republican nominees get uh, get in place. But, um, you know, so it's going to be a very tight campaign. There's not going to be dramatic changes in the Congress. You know, even if the Democrats were to lose the Senate, it's going to be by one or two votes. And as we've seen in a Senate now that requires 60 votes to get anything done, it's not going to mean that one party is going to suddenly... Uh, have it easier to make decisions. One of the things that I find so so frustrating is, let me just make an aside here, particularly with some of the new members of Congress who refuse to compromise on so many issues and then say they want to support the American Constitution, I scratch my head because I think that, you know, one of the things that make the United States unique from many of uh, your home nations is we have a system of government in the United States that was set up to be slightly dysfunctional. And I mean that in the sense that, you know, our Constitution sets up an independent House, an independent Senate, an independent presidency. And by the nature of the system, they all have to work together to get anything done. There are very legitimate forms of government, parliamentary systems of government and others that says if you win an election, you get to make all your decisions. In America, because we stagger elections and stagger terms, you know, it always will still real recognize some compromise. So the idea that after the presidential election, any of these choices get easier just as crazy. What also makes it crazier is that each day that Congress fails to act, we add about $4.5 billion to that $15 trillion debt. So the size of the debt, the choices that we make, get harder and harder after election. And then finally, what has almost become conventional wisdom is that, that you know, the crisis that will happen at the end of the year will f- make it easier to get things done. At the end of this calendar year, again, for those of you from abroad who don't follow um, uh, all of American economics and policy, here are the things that are all going to happen. The Bush tax cuts 
will expire, which actually adds about over 10 years, about $5 trillion in revenue. The payroll tax cut holiday will expire, which is a cost of $100 billion a year, which, by the way, I voted against 10 days ago, not because I don't think we need more stimulus, but because it wasn't paid for. Capital gains and dividend rates will change. And we set up, when the super committee was not successful, the consequences of the super committee's failure was there would be automatic an additional $1.2 trillion in cuts that everyone in politics says, oh my gosh, if that happens, that will be awful because these are not targeted cuts. They are cuts still just in domestic spending and defense spending, and people aren't even planning for how we adjust with that. So you have this crash coming to happen at the end of the year, and conventional wisdom is, well, it, that will force people into uh, more thoughtful action. Um, how many, and I know, we, again, we have friends from abroad here, but how many people in this room have ever saw the American film Thelma and Louise? It was a number of years back. Well, do you remember the end scene where the women are in the car and they put their foot to the accelerator and the car is racing towards the cliff and for immediate uh, uh, chaos if they go over the, uh, the cliff? Well, that is kind of what we've set up in the political system, this crash that's going to happen at the end of the year. And coming out of a campaign where we may have two presidential candidates who spent the whole campaign calling each other names, and then a series of super PACs coming in and spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to polarize America. The idea that immediately after that, everybody's going to say, oh gosh, let's come together and find common ground and fix this, um, I think is, uh, is not a bet that um, we as a country should take. Third issue, and I'm, again, two more comments, and then I want to make sure we get plenty of time for questions, is that there is a theory and um, by very legitimate economists, and they will point to, they'll point to Greece, they'll point to Spain, they'll point to Portugal, that says the idea of doing a deficit reduction plan now while the economy is in a slow recovery, it's too fragile to make any choices. Uh, again, I don't, I, I don't agree with this. Now, because we will make these choices. We will either make these choices on our own timeline or we'll make them, as we've seen some of our friends in Europe get forced to make them, when the bond markets said, no mas, you have to make them immediately. And the plan that we have laid out says we don't have to immediately cut back all this spending or immediately cut back um, or raise additional revenues overnight. We have America as the largest economy and currency of uh, reserve currency. We have more time than most other countries. So all we have to do is put a real plan in place over a 10-year time horizon that will phase in these cuts, phase in these revenue increases. And any plan that we've talked about also includes new tools for growth, an infrastructure investment bank, a tax code that's predictable, these are things that actually I think will help increase confidence. And I personally believe that the value of having a significant at least $4 trillion deficit reduction plan that both raises revenue and decreases spending and has the confidence that it will be enforced will do more to create job growth than any single government action. Right now in this country, we have trillions of dollars in private capital sitting on the sidelines waiting for some predictability. And as well, we have literally trillions of additional capital from many of your countries and others coming to America as kind of haven of last resort, but still sitting on the sidelines waiting to see if we can get our financial act together. So I've told all these bad things. That the one good point, and that is the fourth reason why people went on top of, you know, we can't do it in election year, it'll be easier next year, the recovery is too fragile. The fourth reason why people say it can't get done is that people say, well, there's just not enough bipartisanship. And to some degree that's true. I was very saddened to see the, uh, the decision of uh, Senator Olympia Snow, uh, Senator from Maine, a very, very 
good senator, someone who, who puts country ahead of party time and again decide not to run again. And if you simply read from the outside and follow Congress, it's all negative, negative, negative. There are a growing number of us. It's not just the gang of six that are saying we're ready to do the right thing. The gang of six became, we had 45 senators by November that were saying we're with you guys on a big plan. Even in the House, and the House is always a little bit crazy, uh, even in the House we had 100 members, Democrats and Republicans, saying um, uh, we're ready to go. I absolutely believe if we can get a plan, particularly based somewhat on the so-called Simpson-Bowles plan, and I can go into any as much detail as you'd like on that, that um, that uh, there will be the majorities in the Congress that will realize that the price of doing nothing or the price of simply listening to those on the extreme who don't want to find common ground um, will not triumph over those of us who will actually put our country back on the right path. So what am I, what am I doing and what is the gang doing and what are we doing? Right now we are finishing drafting the gang of six or the Bowles-Simpson legislation. It will be a, you know, people sometimes now say, oh my gosh, this bill is 800 pages long. Well, you don't change the tax code. You don't change the entitlement system without a long bill. We are, we are drafting that, number one. Number two, we, in groups of two and three and four, we're sending Democrats and Republicans out to talk about this issue around the country. Here in Washington, people are focused on politics only. Around the rest of America, people want us to actually get stuff done. So uh, we were in Boston last week. We're going to New York. We're going to Minneapolis. We're going to Seattle, where we're trying to encourage the business community. We're trying to encourage the media to say this issue is not going away. It still becomes, I think, the most important issue for our country to address because I'm not sure we will solve energy, education, and all the health care, the host of other issues, until we can at least get our country's balance sheet right. And Number three, one of the things that we're trying to do is encourage the business community. One of the great disappointments I had last July was when Congress performed so badly and we went through this embarrassment of, of having our country's debt downgraded and the politic, politicians not being able to reach any real grand agreement. You know, the politicians, those of us who are elected deserve the vast majority of the blame. But I make this point as someone who spent 20 years in business, to my friends in business, that they bear some of the responsibility as well. Because business leaders in this country did not step up and demand and say, I am willing to give up my company's particular tax break if I can make sure that we actually put a financial plan in place that's going to get our country back on the right path. So part of our challenge as we build this national campaign is to get business leaders, and we now have about 25 of the top um, CEOs in America who are standing up and saying, we will be part of this campaign so that uh, when the interest groups who say, don't raise, my, don't raise any more revenues, don't raise taxes, don't change the entitlement programs, because those voices will be heard, unless we also have a group that says, no, we have to fix our country. Uh, and, and that will take... Uh, the business leaders who create the jobs, who drive the economy, being, in the, being with us in that fight, then we won't be successful. The good news is uh, that we are finding um, um, folks all across this country ready to step up. So I am, you know, I hold some hope that we could actually see a window, probably make a, a, not necessarily a prediction, I know everything I say, particularly in the land of digital video, will come back and haunt me at some point, uh, but there is at least some small opportunity late this spring to see some significant action. It will either be because of one or two occasions, one which I hope doesn't happen. One would be that if the European crisis yeah, does not work, or does not the solution around Greece and others, and we see contagion spread across Europe, and that the markets then come to the United States and say, okay, you have to fix your problem now. The other opportunity would be if um, the Republican nominee is selected relatively quickly and President Obama and the Republican nominee, say in May or June, both decide on their own, 
do they really want whoever is the next president to have the first action item of the next president to have this train wreck of all of these tax breaks ending and sequester coming, as well as the requirement that the next president will have to raise the debt ceiling $3 trillion. And we saw what happened when that circumstance happened in, in uh, July and August of 2011. If they have to do that as the first action item out of the box, that will really weaken whoever the next president is. So there may be some opportunity for them to say, well, at least let's start putting a framework in place even before the election. What we want to do is we want to have that plan ready. We want to have the political support ready. And if, even if there's not that window in the spring, we want to make sure that when the train wreck starts happening, when Thelma and Louise's car starts veering for that, that cliff, that there is an exit off before you get off that cliff where we've got a plan that will say, here is a path out of, uh, out of this challenge. And it is a great challenge. Uh, let me not underestimate it. But in any kind of historical context, I mean, this is not defeating communism. You know, this is not putting a man on the moon. This is not a challenge, uh, and it pales in the challenge to the, the choices that have been made by our friends in Greece or even our friends in the UK where they waited too long to confront the crisis. Uh, we still have the luxury of, uh, of doing this on our own timeline but only if we act. So my thanks again to the Carnegie Endowment for the opportunity to be here, and I look forward to trying to respond to some of your questions. Thank you all very much. <clears throat>
you know, with uh, appreciation to our friends from China. You know, 20 years ago, America had declining manufacturing, increasing deficits, emerging Asian nation. At that point, it was Japan instead of China. You know, but we sometimes forget in American history that the person who helped educate Americans was really Ross Perot. We kind of need that education process still, number one. Number two, um, you know, I think the Grover Norquist pledge signing is very destructive. But I also believe that Grover Norquist is in many ways is a paper tiger. Uh, I was governor in Virginia. I had a two-to-one Republican legislature. We made these same choices, and I had an overwhelming number of Republicans who voted with me in fixing Virginia's budget. And Mr. Norquist's organization came out with wanted posters and threatened all of the Republican members. They all won. And now we're already seeing, even in the Congress, we're seeing people like Tom Coburn, very, very conservative member, one of the Gang of Six from Oklahoma, stand up to this kind of bullying. And more and more members, uh, Republican members, saying, you know, the oath they took to the Constitution is more important. The third thing is, and this is maybe where we get to the hardcore politics, is that most of the way that we have talked about raising revenues has not been through raising tax rates, but through tax reform, where you actually could see lowering of tax rates, but you eliminate or cut back dramatically on tax deductions. And that actually generates more revenues. People say, well, how is that possible? It's because 60%, and you can do this in a progressive way, 60% of Americans claim no tax deductions. You know, they get their standardized deduction, but they don't, they may not own a home, they may not have a charity they give to. So if you, if you take away and cut back on tax deductions, it's the wealthy who actually, even they pay a lower tax rate, will actually pay more taxes, and there is at least a technical way uh, that uh, some of the Republican, my colleagues, can say, well, I've not violated the pledge, I've just grown the economy and grown the base. So there'll be a little bit of dancing, I think there'll be a little bit of, you know, we need more explanation that these are the real choices, and I think you have a growing sense that um, uh, these kind of absolutist pledges, and let me say it's just not On the Republican side, there are Democratic organizations who say if you do anything to touch Social Security or anything to touch Medicare, you know, they will be equally attacking. But the math just doesn't work. Thank you. Your your questions, sir. sir. Just tell us who you are and uh, your affiliation, if any. Um, Yes, my name is Roger Cochetti. Um, I work with uh, companies in the technology sector, and and I'd, I'd like to begin... Senator, by thanking you for taking a lead on an issue like this, which is terribly important to the future of the country, anyone who's had even passing contact with American politics knows that there are a hundred other flashy issues any politician could latch onto um, that are easy to get a press conference or attention on, and, and this is not one of them. So thank you for your leadership on this. Yeah, you guys are the only people I can talk to with my slides because other people's eyes glaze over. But, but I, I, I do have a couple of comments sure. and, and uh, I'd like you to react to and, and a question as well. Um, the first is having had a couple of conversations with um, people in political life on this issue, I, I have a sense that there are two secret thoughts that many – uh, policymakers have about this, and I'd like you to react to them because nobody thought about this issue more than you or dealt with more policymakers on this issue than you. The first is that uh, we really have more than 10 years. You said because of our role in the world, we, you know, um, w- the world will lend us money, and I don't believe for a moment, by the way, that the lenders are benign. Um, the, the real issue at the end of the day is an underlying belief that they will keep lending us money at low interest rates forever because what else are they going to do with their money? Eat it? Invest it in Indian government bonds? So there, there, we, we are and for a long, long, long time, more than 10 years, will be the best investment of, of capital and as it's, as it's uh, collected, it's got to go somewhere. So we can keep going. Uh, 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 the cliff may be there, but it's decades uh, away. Second um, is that... You know, all these automatic um, 
things that are going to happen, the sequestration, the repeal of the Bush tax cuts, actually are um, a little bit of bad medicine that tastes bad, but you'll get over it, and when you come out of it, you'll be stronger. So let the good times roll. Let, the, let, let whatever happens happen on January 1st, and then we can reinstitute the uh, whatever uh, spending resumptions or tax breaks that we want on a, on a selective basis. So if you'd comment on those two. Great, the, great, great questions. The, the, just one last point, which is that um, Lyndon Johnson was fond of saying where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. And the problem you've already pointed out in this issue is that where you sit, if you're interested in the issue, is sort of what, am, what am I getting? Am I getting defense spending? Am I getting Social Security? Am I getting education benefit? I'm getting something. And um, so all the people who are getting something want the other people's benefits to be taken away. In a sense, the constituency that you're speaking for are the people who are younger than 30 years old, or maybe younger than 20 years old. Maybe people who are not born yet. I mean, they don't, you know, that. And, and, and I would just suggest that as you think about the outreach for this, all the people who have a vested interest in continuing to get the benefits that they're getting um, are ones who are going to say, yeah, I agree with you, but not, of course, mine. It's all the others take care of those. The people who have an interest in the bigger issue are the people who are younger. Those are the ones who really will pay the price for what all of us older people are getting. Thank you. Let me, let me um, all very, very good points. And on the first um, point, you're probably right that we may have longer than 10 years. You know, the, the, the reason we think in 10-year increments, and again, this is for our friends from abroad, the scorekeeper, the referee for Congress's spending or taxes is a group called the Congressional Budget Office. And everybody has a critique of them, but they're the referee. And everything they measure is 10-year increments. So 10-year is an artificial timeline. Matter of fact, the real problems happen in the second 10 years, not in the first 10. But even the, the, the challenge I have is, or the, the, the concern I have is, you're probably 70, 80% right that we may have a little more time than we anticipate. But if the chance is even 10 or 20%, and none of this problem, none of this problem self-corrects, we add that $4.5 billion a, a day to this problem. Why take the chance that you and I could both be wrong and we could say, we could wake up the way we did in the financial crisis when it looked like, oh my gosh, the markets could freeze and we see an interest rate spike and the interest rate spike has such a dramatic negative effect on our economy. I mean, Greek and Italian bonds were selling at you know, close to German bonds you know, a few years back until they weren't. This is not something that we'll, we'll glide into. It will be, we'll be fine until the market turns. So from a chance of both why take the risk and the fact that this doesn't self-correct, um, you know, I would act now rather than later, number one. Number two, the idea you are, again, absolutely right that if we do nothing, if Congress goes away for a year and a half, from a pure deficit standpoint, be the best news possible. Probably Americans would kind of like it too. But I do think here is where Krugman is at least partially right, that if you suddenly had all of the Bush tax cuts automatically reinstate themselves, all the sequester cuts automatically take place, that that would be such a dramatic jolt to the economy uh, that it could dramatically slow the recovery. I do think there would be, you know, and this goes again back to my first question, you know, if you have the Bush tax cuts go away for everyone, payroll tax cuts go away, but if the Bush tax cuts in particular go away and the rates reset, then for the Grover Norquist of the world, if you cut taxes from those rates, maybe it's not a tax cut. That's a cynical view, but, you know, but there is, and it does, the Democrats, you know, the Republicans' hands are strengthened now around revenues. The Democrats' hands, the closer it gets to the expiration of tax cuts, 
their hands get strengthened. And on the third point, I just, you know, intellectually you're right that most of the argument benefits will be for the youngest. But I absolutely believe, you know, that um, Churchill was right when he said that you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Well, we're kind of at that stage of, you know, having tried everything else. You know, whether, you know, America, you know, the, the remarkable thing about America, I think, is you know, not only the, how I, we respond in moments of crisis, but the fact, you know, no other country other than America would have rebuilt our adversaries the way America did after World War II with the Marshall Plan and helping in, in Germany and Japan and elsewhere. You know, so th- I do think there is a sense in America they will do the right thing if we can make it feel like it is truly everyone has skin in the game. And that's why the, the current political debate that says, well, if we just tax millionaires more, or if we just get rid of these free riders who are trying to get too many government benefits, when we have it blame, that's not what Americans will respond to. Then they will stay with, I got mine, I don't want to touch it. But if we can make a plan that says, okay, everyone's going to put a little bit more in. Those who can afford to put more in are going to put a little more in. But even, you know, one of the reasons why I think even on the Bush tax cuts, even, you know, for people above the poverty level, they ought to at least be putting something into the federal income tax system, even if it's $20, $50, $100 a year, so that we can make the argument that this is truly a national crisis that everyone has to step up on. And that attitude of a national crisis is what I think the country is yearning for. We, we, you know, we are all disgusted with the political debate. You know, the, the, this debt debacle has become a proxy for whether our institutions work. And, and what America needs right now, I think more than from the economic standpoint, more from the growth policy, but they need to believe again that our governing institutions are up to putting country ahead of party. And this is that issue that can, I think, make that happen. And it, on a relative basis, again, what this is the part that makes me just so frustrated, is that the ask we are going to make of the American people because we have this ability to phase this in over a period of years is so small compared to the ask being made of the Greek people, of the people in the UK, the Italian people, the Spanish people, you know, who waited too long. And it's why, again, I just, one last, I apologize for taking so long on this, but, but it's, it's why I also just absolutely reject one other parts of the conventional political wisdom in town, which is, well, things have to get worse before we, we act. How many more lives do we have to put in jeopardy? How much worse do we have to make things happen so that then people have to give more or have more sacrifice when this is the most predictable crisis of our lifetime? There, you, know, you could argue that perhaps some people didn't see the financial housing bubble crisis come. Well, there will be, when this crisis hits, there will be no rational policymaker that can say, oh my gosh, I didn't see it coming. Thank you. I think we're running out of time, but uh, let, let me, me take just one take more, uh, so two late. more just, questions uh, here, please. Great. Uh, thanks. Uh, Nelson Cunningham with McClarty Associates. Good to see Hello, you, Nelson. Senator. Um, you know, one of the flashpoints on the revenue side is the notion that we have to subsidize capital gains and investments by giving them a lower tax rate. And I hear the intellectual arguments, and I I hear them, I wonder sometimes, well, why don't we want to subsidize work? Because it seems to be work is also something that we want to encourage. But what I really am troubled by on the capital gains and dividend side is that we don't say we will only subsidize it for investments made in the United States. If I take my money and I invest it in China, and I create lots of jobs in China, and that spins off a dividend or capital gain for me, I get the full benefit of this tax subsidy. I wonder if one way for us to begin uh, challenging the notion that we have to have this giant $100 billion a year subsidy for investments uh, is to say, well, let's at least target it to investments and dividends that come from the United States and investments in the United States and not overseas. Maybe that's one way to just start getting away at the onion. 
Why don't we take a few questions? Yeah, why, yes, no, 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 I, yes, why don't we take a couple questions and I'll answer them both. Yes. That's a very good question. That's a very good Thank question. You. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, I have been concerned for a long time about the medical expenses, and I think that uh, we have uh, two holes. You mentioned one of them. The doctors keep uh, you know, finding new ways to take good care of us. And, uh, Thank goodness. <laughs> that's Please right. don't take away the idea that Warner was for death panels. So, yeah. But also, there, there's no limit on what a, what a business can uh, you know, how, how they can allocate right. uh, the uh, medical uh, care uh, f uh, for uh, medical benefit relative to salary. Uh, it seems to me that one way to uh, deal with that would be to have um, a voucher or for certi certificate or whatnot for every single person in the U.S., and then we uh, would not, we, we would have more social security income out of the, mm -hmm. the uh, and, and more state tax revenues out of uh, the, that came out of that. And I think also people of my age, I think, need to recognize that our grandchildren are more important than we are, and we need to take take a bit less, a voucher that is worth a bit less. I think Congressman Ryan was wrong when he wanted to start vouchers with the, uh, the seniors. It needs to be all your lifelong. Thank you. Over there, please. Hi, my name is Michael Feinberg. I'm a student at GW. Um, one thing that's been pretty frustrating for me is kind of watching the debate from the administration's perspective. Um, I, I, I don't agree with the Ryan plan, uh, and I think the, the video has probably been seen by a lot of, of people here between Paul Ryan and uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner uh, talking about the, the budget that was put out a couple weeks ago. And they were discussing a chart where that was in the budget, in the proposal from, from the president, that has uh, debt to GDP just increasing indefinitely. Um, so I was curious of how, what kind of communication you've had with the administration as far as long-term deficit reduction and uh, what they think about some of the ideas that you're working on in the Gang of Six, if you can share that with us. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. Nothing like easy questions, each of them. Um, let me start. I'll try to do them in order, all right? I get concerned on the capital gains and dividends. First of all, I don't believe we need a 20-point differential, 35% to 15% on capital gains and dividends. I do think that there is a value of patient capital, that the idea that if you're going to invest in building a business, now I'm biased, I was a venture capitalist, Nelson, as you know, but if you're going to build a business or you're a small business and you know, you're not taking out as much money that you're creating an asset, that that, you know, when you sell that asset, some level of favorable tax treatment makes sense. But I don't think it needs to be 20 points. Under President Reagan, capital gains and, and ordinary income was basically equal. And it was at 28%. So, you know, I think this is a dial. Should it be 8-point differential, 10-point, 12-point? And should it kind of track that if, for example, if your highest in, uh, personal rate was 33, maybe capital gains is 23. And if you're top rate was 22, then your capital gains would be 12. You know, so you make it progressive on capital gains. I've not heard the idea of limiting uh, capital gains treatment to only investments in America. Um, I have to say that while it would be politically attractive, I, might, I, would, I think I would have some concerns on it. And the simple reason is I'm not sure how you define really what's made in America anymore. When you have a supply chain and... and and I don't think we can reverse this trend. I don't think we should reverse this trend. And when they had the Made in America components on the stimulus, well, is it assemblage? Is it parts? Is it the software? That kind of complexity, um, you know, I hear more, but I think it's a challenge. On the question of health care, um, you know, Two or three quick points. One, my biggest concern with Paul Ryan's plan, I didn't agree with his Medicare approach, but was also the approach that, that didn't get much attention. 
But we only spend 14% of our federal budget on domestic discretionary spending, which is education, infrastructure, energy, R&D, things that are pretty important. He would have taken that down to 6%. We can't compete. Our friends in China are spending 8 9% just on infrastructure alone. So, you know, I have a respect for Congressman Ryan for putting out a bold plan. I don't agree with all of it, but I do think this the idea of move to an individual accountability voucher, premium support, you know, has, we can't just dismiss that idea out of hand. Um, the challenge, one challenge is, is that about 5% of the American population accounts for over 50% of our health care costs. Those are the chronically ill. And it's hard to figure out a voucher system unless you've got catastrophic coverage on the back end for those very, very sick people. Because otherwise they will run through their voucher entirely. Um, but there are things we can do. For example, on seniors, on a combined, we have a very mismatched payment system on Medicare copayments. We ought to combine it all into one so you get a larger single copayment. But every service you get, you're going to have to have some responsibility as a senior, to think about, or, or you know, and for, for, for younger than seniors as well. The one good piece of news that, that, and this goes again, and I'll get to Michael's question in a second, the administration has not done a very good job on, and because it's so kind of radioactive still, is that as imperfect as the health care bill was, and it was very imperfect, and there were a lot of things I'd like to change in it, I voted for it because I thought the status quo was going to kill us. This would at least shake up the system. But what is happening in America right now, and if you talk to any insurance company, any large hospital system, even most doctor systems, change is coming. And systems are starting to figure out how, we can, how they can get paid, not based on the volume of the tests you get or the volume of the pills you take, but on your health care outcomes. If we can move to what's called now accountable care organizations, which really is basically back to a capitation model. We're going to pay you a certain amount to keep, keep you and me healthy, and how the healthcare system allocates that is going to be less based, based on volume but more on keeping you healthy. That's where we need to move. You can't have a fee-for-service basis in healthcare with an aging, tech, aging population and increasing medical technology. And I think we're making some moves on that. And I think all these ideas, one of the things, again, I would criticize some on my side is that I don't agree with Ryan's Ideas, but we shouldn't criticize them for coming up with a new set of ideas. You know, we shouldn't immediately start with every kind of new idea comes out, figure out how to shoot it. We ought to think about, okay, well, I don't, you know, here's the parts I agree, here's the parts I disagree. On the question of the administration and the, um, um, the deficit, when the gang of six, and we were very late coming out, that's a whole separate lecture, on why we didn't come out in the spring of 2011 as opposed to July of 2011. Be a great, at least, maybe not book, but a good magazine article because there's you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll involved in it. Um, <clears throat> uh, when we came out, within two hours, the president had fully endorsed our plan. Now. The interesting thing was that some of my Republican colleagues who early on wanted the president to be very supportive of our plan, by the time we came out, were afraid that the president endorsed the plan because unfortunately, particularly in the House, anything the president says he's for, a whole lot of House guys are going to be against. And, you know, I can understand the administration's frustration. They're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, they, they're criticized for not being bolder on this, but... If they come out with anything, there is, a, there is an immediate negative reaction, particularly from the Tea Party folks. So my belief has been that the, the value add, as a business guy, I think, you know, where can I add value in this? The value add is to create a safe spot in the Senate and some in the House, but it's going to have to start in the Senate, where a series of bipartisan ideas can come up with a framework we can then take the first round of arrows. Then the president and some of the House Republican leadership can come on and say, well, this isn't perfect, but at least it gives us a starting point. 
So if we have to take the arrows first, that's, you know, that's what I'm hired to do. Um, because if it just is the, unfortunately, if it was, even if the president had the perfect plan tomorrow, you know, in today's environment, he's not going to, so somebody's got to have the, the willingness, because you know, everybody always says, okay, I get the fact that we got to do entitlements, you get the fact you got to do revenues, but you go first. Somebody's got to go first. So if we can go first with a plan that gets grief from both sides, we maybe can add some value. Uh, on behalf of the Carnegie Endowment, thank you very much for being with us here. And on behalf of all of us in this room, people watching uh, on television and uh, a, lot of all, uh, a lot of other people around the, the United States and the world, thank you very much for uh, taking uh, leadership uh, on this thing and this issue. And uh, I hope we, we need you to be lucky. So good luck. And thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.